This is episode number nine of the Individual One podcast. I'm your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and we are distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because Unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has lost their minds completely. They can no longer be objective. And the conservative now, as I call them, state-run media has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Our goal is to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, regardless of whether it's good, bad, or indifferent regarding Donald Trump. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? That's the question we're always asking, as was first asked by my daughter, who's six years old now. That was back when she was about three, but she understood it. She got it. That's the existential question about Donald Trump, and that's the one, the primary question we seek to answer here on the Individual One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the first eight episodes. If you've not done so already, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show via social media. We've got over 11,000 Twitter followers already. Please join that crowd at individual the number one pod that's our twitter handle individual one pod this edition of the individual one podcast will feature a guest for only the second time but this is the first time that we're going to have a conservative in fact this was always my plan to wait to have a conservative guest until this particular person could join us uh, he is esteemed conservative commentator and really the godfather of the never trump conservative movement uh, he is Bill Crystal, and he will join us shortly. But before we get to Bill, uh, I want to go through some of the news that has occurred since our last edition of the Individual One podcast, which was Wednesday morning, Los Angeles, California time. And as is always the case with Trump, so much has happened. And so much of it is bizarre. Uh, so much of it is flat out crazy. For instance, his speech that took over two hours and 20 minutes at the CPAC conference in Washington, D.C., or just outside of Washington, D.C., which ended on Saturday. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We've seen crazy before, but even by Trump standards, this was nuts. For those who do not know what CPAC is, CPAC is the Conservative Political Action a conference. I actually, 10 years ago, it's amazing how long, how much has changed in 10 years. 10 years ago, exactly. I was a co-sponsor of the CPAC conference and a speaker there because I had a movie out called Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected and Palin was targeted. I thought at that time that CPAC was a fraud based upon my own experience with the entire inner workings of the place. And it was very obvious to me that if that's what the conservative movement was about, it was very ripe for some sort of a breakdown or coup, although I never anticipated it would happen as fast or as dramatically as it did. I believe that Donald Trump did understand it. And the most underreported thing about Donald Trump and CPAC by far is that Donald Trump first became on the, the quote-unquote conservative political radar in 2011 and 2012, just after I had had a falling out with CPAC because they were a bunch of frauds and scam artists and they were running a racket, Donald Trump spoke at both the 2011 and 2012 versions of CPAC. 
Now, he didn't do so because he was invited because he was some sort of conservative leader. He did so because he paid them. Correct. He paid them $50,000 each year. Now, I presume the check didn't bounce because otherwise I don't think they'd be stupid enough to invite him back the second year. But so we, we can only presume that over a two-year period, he paid them $100,000. Now, that's not the way this is supposed to work. You're supposed to be invited to these things because you're a conservative leader who's, who the conference has decided you have something of value or that the people attending the conference will think you have something of value to add to the conversation, either through your experiences or your views, what happened. Have you? Well, that's not what Trump did. Trump jumped to the head of the line and was able to pretend to be a conservative because he had the blessing of CPAC, when in reality, he had just paid them off. This was just pure grift. This was pay for play. And that played a critical role in two things. One, Trump being taken seriously within the conservative movement, and because he was a lifelong Manhattan liberal before then. And number two, I believe, and this is just my theory, but it makes sense. You can decide for yourself. I believe that Trump effectively saw the same thing I did. That in seeing that they could, that the conservative movement would so easily sell out, that it was basically just a racket, that they would let a, a lifelong liberal Manhattanite like Donald Trump speak not once but twice very prominently at their conference, that this was a movement ripe for a takeover, ripe for a coup and that he could easily infiltrate it and take it over. And that's what he did. And so now we have everything 10 years after my last experience with CPAC and uh, only, what, eight years after he first spoke at CPAC. Now we have everything flipped on its head. Donald Trump goes from having to pay $50,000 to be part of this thing because he's not a conservative and everyone knows he's not a conservative to not only being the featured speaker and president of the United States, but speaking for two hours and 20 minutes, <laughs> which is unheard of. Well, I mean, we're talking Fidel Castro territory now. Correct. I mean, that, that, and, and it was most of it was bat crap crazy, uh, utterly insane. I, I mean, a lot of play has been given to something that didn't even have anything to do directly with the speech. He came out and he literally molested the American flag. That's what he did. He molested the American flag. The, the American flag had a Me Too moment. I, I mean, you could almost hear uh, Trump saying, when you're a star, they let you do it. I mean, that's what basically what he did to the American flag. And I have talked about this before. In fact, on the last episode of the Individual One podcast about how Trump knows what his weaknesses are and he actually plays into them by pretending that they are strengths and Rational people realize this, but he understands that his cult is not rational, that they're, 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 not, they're not able to figure this out. I love the poorly educated. The, so the, virtually everything he does is the opposite of reality. So when he's literally hugging and molesting the flag, showing his cult how much he loves America, he's actually mocking them. He's laughing internally at them. Correct. And, and they don't even realize it because they're that dumb. They're that dumb. He Internally, he's laughing at them. And if Barack Obama had ever come out and embraced the American flag physically in a highly disrespectful manner, uh, the conservative media would have a complete and total 100% meltdown. Correct. Uh, but that's the world we live in now. All standards are gone. Rationality 
is an afterthought. You know, the, you can be as hypocritical as you want. You can contradict yourself as much as you want. As If you're a pro-Trump person, it doesn't matter. Up is down, down is up, right is wrong, wrong is right, good is bad, bad is good. That's the way it works. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? But, you know, to his cult, it doesn't matter because they love it. Oh, look how much he loves America. He's showing it by he's molesting the American flag. And then there was the speech itself. I, I mean, he he's still talking about the size of his crowd at the inauguration? Seriously. Seriously. He wants us to believe that it uh, that those pictures from almost three years ago, or a little over two years ago now, you don't believe your own eyes. Those were manipulated. Those are not accurate photographs. He want, and why should we believe him? Well, believe me. That's, that's what it is. And I think he was giving Mark Levin, the biggest sellout in the conservative movement, some sort of credit for, uh, for, for cracking this case, finally coming up with an explanation for, for why uh, Donald Trump's inaugural crowd was so puny in comparison to Barack Obama's. It was puny because it's in Washington, D.C., and there are no Republicans in Washington, D.C. It's not that hard to figure out <laughs> why this has gone to the core of his ego to the point where he's president of the United States and has been for over two years, and this is still bothering him, is completely beyond me. But he, of course, uh, went on to get to do his normal shtick. I mean, over two, this was basically playing all the hits over two and a, hours and 20 minutes, uh, ripping into the, the Robert Mueller investigation. Uh, he even said at one point, you hire a few bad people and they go after you for bullshit. That's like almost a direct quote. And he used the word bullshit. He really did. Correct. The president of the United States said bullshit literally live on television and didn't seem to care. In fact, his, his crowd loved it. Not the, but, the, of course, the substance of what he said w was just absurd. I, I mean, here's a guy who got elected partially arguing that he will hire all the best people. Remember that? I will. I hire only the best people. Trust me, I'm a, I'm a multi-billionaire businessman, and I know people, and I hire only the best people. And now he's blaming the, the Russia investigation on the fact that he hired a few bad people. A few bad people? Uh, wait a minute, this was supposed to be your strength. It's just flat out ridiculous. Not to mention a few bad people. Paul Manafort, your ch campaign chairman, who's going to prison, pleading guilty to multiple crimes. He was convicted of crimes even after you, Donald Trump, tried to, I believe, uh, tamper with the jury pool. You're, you're, you're ripping the prosecution's case during jury deliberations, and he still got convicted. Michael Flynn, your national security advisor, doesn't even make it into the to your first term a month in before you have to fire him because he lied about his interactions with the Russian ambassador, among other things. I, Roger Stone, the, your first effective campaign manager, your closest political advisor, He's just been arrested and indicted on multiple charges, essentially colluding with Russia via WikiLeaks in the campaign. You hire a few bad people? And this is, I'm just at the tip of the iceberg here. But that speech was bananas. It was absolutely bananas. And if any other president had given it, that's all we would be talking about for weeks. For weeks, that's all we would be talking about. But with, with Trump, It'll be forgotten by, you know, tomorrow because some other insanity will occur. Speaking of being forgotten, the Michael Cohen testimony. 
Well, not totally forgotten. I mean, it was it led uh, Saturday Night Live last night with uh, Ben Stiller playing the role of Michael Cohen. But even that really didn't touch Trump that much. They, you know, they they went for a couple easy laugh lines. It was okay, but but even you know even that wasn't all that impactful. And the Cohen testimony is still literally ongoing. It will still continue to resonate. There are other things that uh, he referenced that he was not able to talk about. There are other investigations. But I wrote a column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, or if you just Google Mediaite, where I write my columns about twice a week. I wrote a column about the the Cohen testimony, which basically argued that this was a, a, a situation that was much worse for America than it was for Michael Cohen. I mean, Orwell. It was, who knows if it'll be bad for Michael Cohen. But it was much worse for America than it was for Donald Trump, at least so far. Correct. I mean, because it made us look horrendous. It made us look just like a joke of a country. And it, it's really pathetic. I mean, we have a mob boss as a president of the United States. And Elijah Cummings, who's the Democratic chairman of the Oversight Committee, who hosted Michael Cohen, for that uh, testimony earlier this uh, past week, he tried very hard to put lipstick on this pig at the end of of the hearing, like seven-hour-long hearing. He went into a, 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 a quite a diatribe talking about how, you know, the, we as a country, well, we're better than that. <laughs> I love that. That might become a new staple of the Individual One podcast. We're better than that. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Congressman Cummings, we're not better than that. That's the problem. We're not better than that. Uh, and I, I, don't, I think the evidence is obvious that we're not better than that. We have a president of the United States who is an amoral, narcissistic mob boss. If we were better than that, that person would never have become president of the United States. He would not be revered by 40-some percent of the public uh, as president of the United States. He would not have had a personal lawyer who's his as much of a scumbag as Michael Cohen is. And by the way, speaking of hiring a few bad people, let's add Michael Cohen to that list too. I mean, how, how do you see? That's the other thing with Trump. It's, it's such a lie. And there's so many examples that it's a lie that you actually forget them. I mean, it's, and it's my job to remember them. And I have an excellent memory. And I, I leave Michael Cohen off the list of people he hired that are awful, terrible people. I mean, this is a guy who was his personal lawyer, his fixer for 10 years. And somehow, you know, even if you pretend you don't believe anything that Cohen said in that testimony, I think a lot of it was credible because of the circumstances surrounding it and some of the documentation. But at the very least, shouldn't Trump get some blowback for the hire itself? I mean, he's being forced to acknowledge that Michael Cohen is a dirtbag, a lying Dirtbag is going to prison, and yet somehow nothing. To the Trump cult, that means nothing that he hired Michael Cohen, that he hired Michael Flynn, that he hired Paul Manafort, that he effectively hired and then fired and remained as an advisor, Roger Stone. None of that matters. Why? Well, because he beat Hillary. (laughs) Because he's like the Wizard of Oz, and he killed the Wicked Witch of the West. And they're the munchkins in munchkin land, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters to them. Now, a couple other loose ends from the Cohen testimony, because I did do an extensive review of that, and I urge you, if you've not done so already, to check out episode number eight of the Individual One podcast, because I I really do believe that 
the review that we did, especially considering the fact that it was in the middle of the testimony and had not been completed yet, that the review we did of, of the Cohen testimony was about as good as you're going to get and as in-depth as you're going to get. So make sure you check that, that, that out if you have not as of yet. But there were a couple of things that happened since then that I think are worthy of mention. Number one is Matt Getz, or Gates, the congressman, Republican congressman who had threatened Michael Cohen, uh, we mentioned that on the podcast, that how outrageous that was, and that he'd actually shown up at the committee hearing, even though he's not a member of that committee, which is right out of The Sopranos, right? I mean, that, that's the kind of thing a mob boss does. You send your henchmen over just to physically intimidate the guy who had just uh, threatened you online, and because uh, he had no business being there. But then a conversation that he had with Donald Trump on the phone, and it's weird how this got reported, but it seemed credible to me, that it was reported that on the phone that Getz actually says to Trump, I was happy to do it. Now, let's use our brains here. And let, you know, there was no denial of this story, which made pretty big headlines. So let's be clear. The president of the United States called to congratulate and thank a congressperson for overtly and publicly intimidating and threatening the family of a witness to Congress who also happened to be that president's former personal lawyer. Do I have that right? Correct. What? This is, again, mob boss stuff. This is Tony Soprano stuff. This isn't even high-end mob boss. This is low-end mob boss stuff. And no one in the Republican Party seems to care. Um, Folks, this is the kind of thing that will eventually come back to haunt conservatism. This is why I believe that in the long run, and this is my major of all my complaints about Trump, this is the one that I'm, I'm most on fire about. Because his cult doesn't get it. The Republican Party doesn't seem to care, even if they do get it. Some of them probably do. That whether it's five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, there's going to be a backlash against this that is going to be of tidal wave proportions. We saw a portion of it in the midterm elections where the Democrats took over the House of Representatives. That that Republicans are not going to be able to hold the line against. Because once Trump is gone, most of his cult is gone And so are the people who used to vote Republican that held Republicans at least being able to keep a a 50 percent margin that where Democrats could not take over the all the reins of power. And when they briefly did, when Barack Obama won in a wave election of 2008, they lost it immediately in 2010. That's going to be gone. A lot like what happened here in California post Arnold Schwarzenegger. That, that, that's my great fear. We live in a, I live in a state here in California where there is no Republican Party. There is no conservatism. There is not even holding the line against liberal socialism, which Trump claims to be against, because the Republican Party has been decimated. And I think that we're headed, well, I don't know when that's going to happen, but that's what's, I believe, inevitable because of Donald Trump moving forward. Now, Democrats may blunder that. They may may blow it. They they may not be able to handle that kind of easy success. That's our, frankly, I think our best shot at this point. But they are going to be handed a tremendous opportunity to do whatever the heck they want. And it's all going to be because of Donald Trump and his absolute abject incompetence 
amorality, his inability to care about anything other than himself. The, the utter narcissism of this man. And, that, and to me, that's the number one quality a president should have. Do they at least care as much about the country as they do themselves? And Donald Trump does not. One other point about uh, the Cohen testimony. Jerry Nadler went on ABC this morning with George Stephanopoulos, and he uh, stated that and Jerry Nadler, for those who do not know, he is the head of the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives, which would be key if Donald Trump was ever going to be uh, impeached. And I believe he will be impeached, although he will not be removed from office. Although I'm not sure, it's not 100% he'll be impeached, but it's it's pretty darn, it's getting close. Uh, and Nor is it 100% that he won't be removed, but it's darn close to that. In fact, it's probably close to 100% he will never be removed than it is that he will be impeached. But the point I'm getting at here is that Nadler told uh, George Stephanopoulos in no uncertain terms that Trump had, in fact, obstructed justice. And obstruction of justice would clearly be an impeachable offense. And Nadler went into just some. I mean, that's, that's again, I, I keep going back to this. Trump benefits from all the potential crimes that he's, he has committed that it's very difficult to focus on just a couple. And you get overwhelmed and you forget about some of them. <laughs> it's easy to forget about some of the crimes that Donald Trump has, uh, at least uh, potentially, if not clearly, committed especially in the realm of obstruction of justice. You could argue that just about every single day Donald Trump has obstructed justice because he's commenting as president of the United States on an ongoing investigation of his own campaign in a highly negative fashion. Every time he calls Robert Mueller's investigation a witch hunt, that's obstructing justice because he's president of the United States. And no other president would have ever even thought about uh, commenting on an ongoing investigation of his own campaign and of, of his own possible uh, criminal actions. Would never even have thought of it. That never even would have occurred to another president, even Bill Clinton. But Trump does it because of Twitter on virtually a daily basis. Now, Nadler, you know, it, it's interesting because Nadler basically says, well, we don't have all the evidence we need yet, and we, we're basically waiting for all of, essentially what he was saying was waiting for Mueller's report before we move forward on impeachment proceedings. But I, I continue to believe that the timing, and timing is everything in life, that the timing here is going to be all wrong. That unless Mueller uh, comes through big and, and, and very soon, it's going to be too late because we're getting very close to the start of a new presidential election, and Trump's going to be the Republican nominee, if only for his own protection. Which, by the way, is something that used to happen only in third world countries, where you had presidents who continued to try to hold on to power so they didn't go to jail. But that's where we are with Donald Trump. That's, that's where we are. I, I mean, it's unbelievable, but that's where we are. It's pathetic. And of course, his, his cult doesn't even realize it, and they don't even care. There were a couple other things that occurred that um, I don't want to uh, leave untouched because they are definitely worthy of mention. And this is classic Trump before his CPAC speech on a Saturday morning. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, he tweeted, he tweeted a commercial for one of his Scottish golf courses. I'm not making this up. It's just flat out ridiculous. The president of the United States tweeted a commercial for one of his Scottish golf courses. And he did so making, <laughs> I think he thought that by doing this, he was mitigating the uh, obvious uh, conflicts of interest problems and the potential violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution by saying that somehow 
his Scottish golf course had improved relations with the United Kingdom. <laughs> First of all, like everything else Trump does, it's uh, not true because <laughs> the people of Scotland hate this particular golf course. And there's a legal record to show that they hate this particular golf course. So there's no evidence whatsoever. Like classic Trump, it's the opposite of the truth. It's actually harmed U.S. relations with the United Kingdom. But regardless, it doesn't matter you just used your official Twitter feed as a commercial for one of your properties. And that's a, and this is a guy who got elected saying, I'm going to drain the swamp. That's swampy as hell. It doesn't get swampier than that. Correct. Actually, it might get swampier than that. How about if you overrule your own intelligence agencies and order your chief of staff, John Kelly, to give your son-in-law... Jared Kushner, a security clearance that he did not qualify for. Would that be swampier? Correct. Yes, it would be. And that's exactly what apparently happened. Now, I don't uh, give John Kelly a pass here because this is the kind of thing that should have had John Kelly resign. This is the kind of hill you're supposed to die over. This is the kind of thing that when it happens contemporaneously, you say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I cannot do this, especially given... Uh, Kelly's military history. So I don't want I would like to get more explanation. I have an open mind. I would like to hear more from John Kelly about why he did this, why he did Donald Trump's dirty work in getting Jared Kushner a security clearance so he could work in the White House when he did not qualify for one. Of course, there's the other reason is the other interesting thing, which we need to get to the bottom of, and the Democrats in the House of Representatives say that they will. Why didn't he get the security clearance? What, what is, what's going on with Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of the president, the husband of Ivanka Trump? Why didn't he get the security clearance? And why, by the way, the lies? Trump lied about this. Ivanka lied about this. I'm pretty sure, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing Jared Kushner lied about this. They blatantly lied about whether or not there was influence from the president to get Jared Kushner his security clearance. But of course, lying doesn't matter anymore. And that's that, that might be the biggest thing about the Trump presidency uh, that I, I can't get over. I mean, I mean look, I'm, I'm a realist. I realize the people that are in office are hardly perfect people. Often, the, often they're terrible people. Uh, but, but the damage being done by Trump, especially in the realm of truth, and I'm a truth guy, he has devalued the issue of lying to the point where it's almost worthless to even claim the lie. And, and, and being called a liar used to be the gold standard. Well, he basically turned the truth gold. If, if truth was gold or vice versa, he made uh, gold into tin. Truth has no meaning anymore. And the, and the allegation of being a liar is virtually meaningless, which, of course, is ironic since that was the entire charge against Michael Cohen. I love that the Trump fans are, oh, you can't believe anything Cohen says because he's a liar. Really? You mean like Donald Trump? <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing that this stuff happens and, and, and no one seems to make the connections. The, the hypocrisy is just off the charts. Correct. And, and one other thing I have to mention, and this would be a normally a, a huge deal, but in, in Trump world, it gets lost. Trump just came back from a disastrous North Korean summit with Kim Jong-un. Now, look, I want to give Trump a little bit of credit here. Of course, you know, Trump will say, you know. I've really done a good job. Yeah, I mean, and he and asked on North Korea, he would probably say. Look, I hate to do it, but I will do it. I would give myself 
an A plus. Right, because he went over there. He gave Kim Jong-un exactly what he wanted, more stature, more prestige, a one-on-one meeting with no preconditions with the president of the United States. It's Trump who goes across the world to Vietnam to meet with him for a second time, and we get nothing out of the deal. Now, I said I'm going to give Trump some credit. At the very least, he didn't make a really, really bad deal. Correct. So so that there's at least that. We at least have that going for us, which is nice. Trump did not. And I will say that it must have been tough for Trump because he knew that getting nothing was going to be a problem for his ego. I mean, he's supposedly the great deal maker, just like he's supposedly the guy who hires only the best people. Uh, but, he, of course, that's not who he is. He's a terrible deal maker. But thankfully, at least he didn't make a horrendous deal, which is what was offered by North Korea. Of course, a, going back a little bit, a, a person who uh, understood what they were doing and knew the game and didn't care about just doing something because it was going to get him lots of attention would have realized that result was inevitable. That was inevitably going to be the result, and they therefore would not have given Un, Kim Jong-un what he wanted by going into this summit without a deal already made to begin with. That's amateur hour, and that's something that conservatives like Mark Levin would go bananas over if anybody else had done it, especially if their name had been Barack Obama. But, again, hypocrisy doesn't matter. Principles don't matter. Consistency doesn't matter. And as far as what Trump said about uh, Otto Warmbier, who was the uh, American student who was captured over there, tortured, effectively killed, and then had his body shipped back here just before he died— For Trump to say that he takes Kim Jong-un at his word, that he had nothing to do with it, was not knowledgeable of it, didn't order Wong Beer to be tortured or killed or what have you. Well, you know what? I mean, I'm I'm tempted to use Charles Barkley. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that doesn't even cut it. It doesn't even cut it. Because uh, it, it forget forget by the way if it's factually accurate. There's some people who are lamely trying to claim that well Trump might have a point and maybe Un didn't directly Kim Jong Un didn't directly uh, order this. First of all, I don't buy that for a second. That's bullshit. Uh, but it does also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you don't say that. You don't say to the world on his, uh, on foreign soil uh, that you take his word over our own intelligence agencies and, by the way, over the word of his grieving parents who you have previously used as pawns for your own political gain. Now, of course, Trump has tried to backtrack on this. He has claimed he was misrepresented. He was not misrepresented. You don't get misrepresented that way. But I wrote a column, which I hope you'll check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about why it is that Trump keeps complimenting these dictators, these tyrants, people like Vladimir Putin, people like the crown prince from Saudi Arabia, people like Kim Jong-un. I am no longer believing that it's necessarily, I'm still open to this, because he is personally compromised. He might be, especially when it comes to Russia and Saudi Arabia. But there might be a simpler explanation. And a lot of people found this column to be very interesting, so I hope you'll check it out. But it deals with how Trump views human beings and how he views them through the prism of are they famous, right? Are they rich? Are they powerful? Have they said nice things about me? And can they do things for me either in the immediate future or the present or the immediate future? Those are the five things that Trump uses to evaluate human beings. And when, if you think about it that way, and, and, and hopefully this is the case because it would be better 
marginally better than if he was compromised because they've got leverage over him. But there's certainly that's certainly possibly part of this equation. But just the way he views human beings, I think it's it's instructive to understand that this is a guy who would gravitate to a Putin, to a Kim Jong-un, if only because of their power, their fame, their wealth, and the fact that they've said nice things about him and that they could do things for him in the future. That's the way he looks at the world, which is exactly the wrong way you want a president of the United States to look at the world. The president of the United States should be putting his own personal self-interest completely aside, and Trump does exactly the opposite. So that's the review of the, the news. And frankly, I could talk for another couple of hours reviewing the news. But we have a very important and special guest that I want to bring on the program now. He's a guy who I have long admired as one of the best conservative commentators in the entire country. And as I said, uh, he has become the godfather of the never Trump conservative movement. Bill Crystal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be with you. Uh, it's always great to be with you, Bill. And um, one of the things that we have in common is we both love a, a quote from uh, Eric Hoffer. Uh, yeah. Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. I know you tweet that often. And since we're doing this interview the day after CPAC ends, uh, I think it's particularly appropriate to start this interview by mentioning that. What were your thoughts on this particular edition of, of CPAC? You know, and, and the great minds work uh, work together or work similarly category. I actually cited that quote this morning on television, so um, we're even more in sync than usual. The, uh, I mean, what a far, I mean, feedback was always, you know, part fun, part uh, salesmanship, part antics. But it used to be, as I recall, part ideas and part politicians making their case uh, to the public and, and part actually engaging some non-conservatives on issues where there were coalitions. There was just a tad of that this year on one or two issues, I think, criminal justice reform, a little bit of a discussion of defense. But it was mostly uh, what you would expect in the age of Trump, I'm afraid, which is a combination of demagoguery, some of it pretty off-putting, uh, just clownishness. Uh, which is okay to a degree, but not when it becomes the main, uh, you know, the kind of main uh, route of a movement, so to speak, the main, the heart of a movement, and then a fair amount of, of, of grift and, uh, and racket, you know, the, the racket side of things was pretty well, pretty well uh, represented, too. Bill, I was a uh, co-sponsor of CPAC back in 2009 when I had a documentary film come out about Barack Obama. And I, I believed uh, very quickly that CPAC was a racket and, and a fraud. And that's nothing compared to what it is now. And over time, it used to anger me that this was representing conservatism. But this year, it turned to laughter for me. I, I now think it's a joke. I'm curious, just, where, where are you on, on, on that grieving process? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm pretty much where you are, and that the the bulwark which I work with sent a, a liberal reporter who's very lively and colorful, Molly Jong Fast, to cover it. Probably was he just didn't take it seriously and didn't take any of the ideological discussions seriously. I think the broader question, and I think you and I may be in similar places on this too, is I mean, what does it say about the conservative movement, and and are we in a grieving process about that? And maybe, you know, maybe that's also just the way movements are, right? They they accomplish a lot. They're animated by ideas, but they are, as the term movement suggests, kind of a, you know, they're a thing that moves along, they're, they're, and they can become either encrusted with kind of old ideas and ideologies and orthodoxies that aren't quite uh, relevant to the new times. I think there's been some of that with conservatism, obviously, uh, and a kind of unthinkingness, and then just a kind of... Uh, 
degeneration, as, as Hoffer suggests, into into the the uh, grifter side of things. And then Trump makes it all so much worse. I mean, I guess that's what I'm struck by. I I, I take your point that in 2009 it was nothing great, but I mean, it's one thing to have a nothing great. A yearly meeting for three days as part of a broader movement that has serious people, reasonably serious people, leading it in Congress and as presidential nominees and as governors and so forth. It's another thing to have a three-day clown show uh, that is at the heart of the movement because the president and the vice president of the United States speak there and the president is greeted with adulation. Well, Bill, I, I want to make one other point about CPAC because this will broaden it to what happened to the conservative movement. I'm very curious to get your take on this. I, I'm amazed, and I'm not even 100% sure you know about this, although you probably do. I'm amazed that when it comes to CPAC and Trump that no one ever mentions how this thing evolved. People don't know that in 2011, 2012, because Trump was not a conservative, he paid $50,000 on two different occasions to be able to speak at, at CPAC. It was a pay-for-play situation, and it gave him conservative street cred, which I I believe, led to the him uh, giving Romney his endorsement and Romney uh, effectively uh, elevating Trump by accepting that endorsement, which then set the stage for 2016. And it's my belief, Bill, that that was the nose of the camel inside the tent where Trump realized that the conservative movement was largely a racket and that it was ripe for a hostile takeover. What do you make of that theory? You know, I'd sort of vaguely known that once and forgotten it. And I think it's fascinating uh, as you say it. And has an awful lot of truth to it. I mean, he saw that hucksterism would not hurt you among an awful lot of conservatives. It would be excused by some, and then just almost embraced by others who I think uh, despairing of winning an election after two successive defeats. I mean, two, two defeats is not that many in the big picture, you might say, especially with special circumstances, at least in the first case, and with uh, you know, the huge recession of 2008. Anyway, but after two defeats, and despite conservative successes at the state level and in Congress, there was a desperation that Trump was able to take advantage of. I wonder how many conservatives looked at him and said, you know what, he is a huckster. Maybe we need, we need our own huckster. We need our own demagogue. Don't you hear that a lot from people? I mean, when I complain about Trump, the first word I was at a dinner this week at a university uh, after giving a talk, students and faculty, the students were great. The students were non-Trump conservatives. They were just desperate for something to, to, to look to, to look up to, people to look up to. Uh, they were studying these thinkers that you and I respect and wanted to, to know what political movement in the future was going to, you know, embody a respect for free markets, American leadership in the world, policies that fostered personal responsibility, and so forth. But uh, one of the faculty members, interestingly, at this dinner, it was kind of a conservative, said to me, well, Trump won, you know, and all these other people didn't win. And I, I think it, so it doesn't only not hurt Trump to be something of a con man and a huckster. There's a kind of admiration for that among an awful lot of conservatives today. Bill, I agree with you totally. I, I actually think that there are also a percentage of conservatives that just love to be entertained. I think that they love uh, the, the, you know, the, the entire entertainment aspect of it. And I, I'm curious, Bill, in, in, in that vein, do, do you think that people like you and I misread who conservatives were, or did those people change? How, what happened? <laughs> Well, I'm sure a little of both. I totally agree about the entertainment. I, the one thing I really feel I misread in the primary fight was just how much of a benefit it was to Trump to have had that reality TV show for a long time. It was it 12, 14 years, I think? And well-ranked show. And people sort of believed the image that he portrayed or that his producers uh, helped him portray on that show of the kind of likable, sort of roguish, decisive businessman who knows what he's doing. And um, but, and you tell people this is a TV show. It's scripted. And, nope, my, I, I, but 
did they really not understand it was scripted? I started to ask myself after the third or fourth of this conversation, or do they not want to even hear that because they kind of want to believe? They kind of know it's a con, but they kind of like the con, and the ultimate joke is on the left. After all, they tell themselves, I mean, we'll see about that, but that's what they tell themselves. So, yeah, I don't know how much of this was, some of it was always there. I love politics in America. If you read about democratic politics, American politics in the 19th century, people come over from Europe and they say, God, it's just a spectacle, you know, three-hour speeches, and, and they have these conventions with elephants and donkeys and balloons. You know, there's always been a fair amount of that in, right. in, in a democratic uh, country like ours and in an entertainment-loving country like ours. But I, I think what's true about a lot of things about Trump, you can find a lot of aspects of Trumpism that were there already in conservatism, in the Republican Party, in our politics more broadly. No question about that. Still, you can have a lot of aspects of things which are there. They occasionally pop out. They, they color things a little bit. But that's different from having them take over. I guess that's what I always come back to. My friend Charlie Sykes says that, you know, uh, kind of Trumpism, the, the kind of bigotry, the xenophobia, the nativism, was always a recessive gene in the Republican Party. Uh, but one important thing about a recessive gene is that it's recessive, you know, and most of the time it, it kind of kept under wraps. And and that's the Trump sort of saw these opportunities, saw these, these, these instincts, uh, and really capitalized on them and has been willing to appeal to them in a demagogic way, in a way that almost no other that very few other American politicians have. Certainly no one else has become president. It's one thing to sort of, you know, want to say, look, some of my uh, supporters might be bigoted. Frankly, they might like some of my positions on busing, let's say. But nonetheless, I'm against busing because it's bad policy, and I'm going to make that argument, and I can't really be, it's not really my fault if some of the people who agree with me agree with me for bad reasons. I would say that would be maybe your average Republican politician's view, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, today, the, the, the sort of the mask is off, though, and the dog whistles and and uh, and other appeals are pretty blatant. And uh, and Trump again in, in using those makes things worse. I guess it's not you know, that people say, "Well, Trump will go, come and go." You know, I, he'll come and go, but he'll do damage uh, once he's he will have done damage even when he's gone. All right. Well, I want to talk about that, and, and just to put it in slightly different terms, I view it as Trump basically opened up the gates, and the inmates have taken over the asylum, and there's been a, a coup of conservatism, and it's no longer conservatism, and even people who previously were conservative now are at least temporarily claiming to not be. I don't even know what you call Trumpism other than Trumpism itself, but that that's my view on it. And I, and Bill, I, you know, you and I agree on so much, but where we differ a lot is in the issue of optimism versus pessimism. I, I admire your optimism. I really do. Uh, I'm a pessimist by nature. And I, so I have to ask you, are you still optimistic about how conservatism survives Trump? And if you are, why? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm really quite as optimistic as, uh, as you say I am, or as I sometimes perhaps uh, pretend to be. My father once said that he was a cheerful pessimist, and I guess I've always tried to take that as a as a guideline. And was it Gramsci? I mean, one of those Marxists, I think, who said that he was uh, a philosophical pessimist, or that one should one had to be a philosophical pessimist, but an operational optimist. And there's some truth to that. I mean, however pessimistic one might be, uh, you know, one has to one has to be. Uh, clear-eyed in seeing the situation. You shouldn't let optimism blind yourself to things. But, you know, take the Republican Party, where I think you think it's more hopeless than I do that a challenger might defeat Trump or, or even do some good in opposing Trump and planting a flag for the future. But I guess my sense on that is you got to try. You know, we, we can't just let one of the two major parties 
devolve into Trumpism and sort of for the next 20 years if we could avoid it. So I guess I'm 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 not sure how different we are so philosophically, but I guess I'm having been in Washington all these years sort of see the virtues of a kind of operational uh, No, I get optimism. that. I get it. And as I said, I, I admire it to a certain degree. But let's take this out of the theoretical and put it into the practical, since you've mentioned yeah. it. I mean, you are the you know well-known as the guy trying to find a uh, an opponent for Trump in a Republican primary. Uh, you actually provided me a quote from a media column I did about this a couple of weeks ago, where my take basically was, it ain't going to happen, at least not in an effective way. And look, I am all about uh, losing uh, principled fights. I mean, I've done it throughout my entire career. My wife, <laughs> yeah, right. we're both, we're both, we're both got a good track record on that. I right, think. right, right. So, I mean, I have no problem with doing something for the principle of it, but it's it at least can't be perceived as a complete and total disaster. Have you accepted that Donald Trump is going to be the 2020 Republican presidential nominee? No, no, because I think, look, it's a long way away. He would be if the primary were today. We don't know what Mueller will find. We don't know where the economy will be. We don't know what else we'll learn. We don't know what foreign policy disasters. I hope there aren't any, but they could follow from Trump's policies. He's being helped a huge amount by the good economy and by the lack of obvious foreign policy disasters so far. So I think there's a chance he won't be the nominee, and not a trivial chance either, not a 50% chance, but I don't know, 20, 25%, something like that. And you know, I think it's worth fighting that fight. It's also worth fighting the fight to get 35 or 40 percent of the uh, of Republicans and independents in New Hampshire to vote against him and to say, going to after he loses in the general election, if he does, to say that, look, there's an alternate Republican okay. future and some people voted okay. for it in 2020 in the primaries. So I'm, I'm for taking a shot. Now, look, a year from now, we'll do this again a year from now, if, you, if you'll have me again, and we'll discuss this, and maybe we'll, we'll all have decided, okay, it's hopeless, Trump's uh, okay. coasting to the Republican but, but, okay, but, uh, nomination. But Bill, but Bill, and I'm glad to have you back in a year, hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll both still be standing, but, but the point I'm thinking is, give me a path. Tell me who's going to beat him, or even can give him a, a tough fight. I mean, William Weld? Seriously? Well, Larry, no, no. I think well, I think Weld is unlikely to. I think Weld can fight him some and, and, and wound him a bit. But no, Governor Hogan or Senator Sass or people who are real people in public life who've won elections and and are currently in office or in some cases, other cases, maybe very recently in office. A congressman Will Hurd of Texas, very impressive guy. I don't know if one of them ran. I think it could get interesting. But is there any but indication? What I make is look. If a year from now I'm wrong. And your pessimism is vindicated. I guess we'll all have to figure out what we're going to do in terms of who who do we support or or do we sit it out or or what. But I mean, I I think it'd be good to have to at least take a shot. Look, I'm all for taking a shot. You don't have any indication that those people you mentioned are actually going to make a legitimate run against Trump, do you? Yeah, I think Larry Hogan is really thinking seriously about it. And yeah. and, and why do you think that he could make headway? Well, because he's a moderately Republican, but still Republican. Uh, I mean, moderate Republican or moderate conservative Republican, but still a real Republican, a governor of a, of a state that's, of course, a Democratic state, so he's had to compromise across the aisle, which is both strengths and weaknesses, but a serious guy who uh, is a, a good retail politician, has been a good governor, is a grown-up, is kind of a, you know, would be a responsible steward of the country's affairs, not super charismatic, perhaps, maybe that's a good contrast to Trump. Let, let me uh, outline more about why I'm pessimistic, because I think the record has shown 
that uh, the the adage that Trump himself created that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his fans wouldn't care has been borne out time and time again. We've seen it even with the Michael Cohen testimony this week. I don't think there's going to be any major uh, political damage done to him, at least in the short run, by that. Who knows in the long run? I, I, I am not a believer that Mueller is going to come f- forward with some sort of nuclear bomb with regard to collusion. In fact, I think the collusion theory has been taking a hit as of late, especially in the Cohen testimony. But even if even if things happen, that, that like you're saying, well, you know, the economy could uh, collapse or something bad could happen with the Mueller or what have you. I don't see a celebrity primary challenger. Your magazine, The Weekly Standard, is no longer around. Charles Krauthammer is no longer around to give a foothold at Fox News Channel. No John McCain, no Jeff Flake, no Bob Corker, no George and Barbara Bush. So where's there? It's just you, Bill. I mean, I, I mean, where's the infrastructure for for mounting a counter movement within the Republican Party? You know, so look, we've raised a little money at, at our, our our little organization, Defending Democracy Together, and we've got people actually in some of the, in the states we've been dealing with so far, which is mostly Iowa, New Hampshire, a little bit South Carolina, California, which will now have an early primary. I'm going out there tomorrow to speak to a bunch of Republicans who are getting together. And there are people who want to help against Trump. Would they be as numerous as the people who are going to help Trump? No. But again, it sort of depends also what happens over the next year. So I'm not quite as quite as despairing as, as you are. I take your point that uh, it would be nice to have a, a bit bigger infrastructure. But I think as the Gene McCarthy campaign against Johnson shows in 67, even Reagan, honestly, in 75, 76 against Ford, you know, the infrastructure kind of can come together quickly if there's an attractive candidate, if there's a sense of urgency, if there's a sense of crisis. Trump has benefited so much from the fact that even though we're alarmed because of what it says about the rule of law and some of the other things that Trump is president and is getting away with all these things, or so far getting away with them, uh, um, you know, a lot of American normal voters are sort of living, you know, the economy's pretty good and we're not in some Vietnam-type debacle, so people say, okay, let's not get too, you know, too, too worked up about this, but I'm not sure as we get closer to an actual election where people have to decide whether four more years of Trump is is, is the right thing, uh, that, that he's quite as strong as we think. I've been struck in some of the polling we've done, and, and I've seen a couple of focus groups we've done. People, there are a lot of reluctant Trump supporters, a lot of moderates and conservatives, especially conservatives, who said, not so many moderates, who say, you know, I approve of the tax cuts, I approve of the judges, I don't like a lot of that other stuff, but you know, it doesn't really matter that much. And they say, and I approve of him, he's better than Hillary Clinton, he's better than Nancy Pelosi, he's better than the liberal media, et cetera, et cetera. But when you ask them, well, going forward, are you comfortable, are you confident for an additional four years for Trump? Then they kind of get, say, I'm not so sure about that. And that includes a lot of Republicans, and these are focus groups of Republicans. So, Again, I, I mean, look, you know, you may be right, and honestly, you know, I'll fight the fight for the next year, and if you're right, you're right, and then we'll all have to figure out what to do here. I'm not saying, but Bill, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying don't fight. Although no, I, I, no, I, no, no. I, I do, I do think though. By the way, there's going to have to be a decision to make to be made as, as to uh, whether or not you, you reach the threshold of a a valiant effort that's respected and one that actually strengthens Trump because he allows uh, him to destroy somebody and and further cement his his iron fisted hold on the Republican Party. I think that's going to be a tough call. Yeah, fair, it, fair, fair, fair enough. Uh, um, by the way, one other point, uh, just real quick. You mentioned 1968, and granted, that's a different world. Uh, but I want to mention one thing that I think you're going to agree with. 
1968 situation on the Democratic side where Johnson decides not to run for re-election because uh, of what he perceived to be an embarrassing performance in the New Hampshire primary where he wasn't even on the ballot, all right? He wasn't even on the ballot. He decided to do that in a situation where his popularity was very similar to Trump's uh, going into 2020, but he did that out of his own sense of dignity. Trump doesn't have that. Trump, Trump is not going to decide, you know what, I'm just too unpopular to run for re-election. He, his ego will not allow that, Bill. You know that. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> okay. Not to, beat to beat him fair and square. Okay, fair yeah. enough. All right, now, a couple other uh, bigger points in regard to uh, conservatism. Um, I, I, of the challenges, it, it's, it's funny, Bill, I'm sure you find it humorous how uh, – the Trumpsters attack people like you and I all the time, even though we're supposed to be totally irrelevant. I've never heard of a group of people who are more irrelevant that get attacked more often uh, than people like like uh, you are. Uh, but of, of the of the challenges to, to the never Trumpers, the one that is is most stupefying to me is that serious people, even in, in office, who are Republicans and conservatives, will claim that he has done better, meaning Trump has done better than we expected. I, that to me is my favorite or most stupefying rationalization of the Trump people, because to me, it's been far worse than I had ever thought it could be. Uh, what do you make of that particular rational, rationalization? And do you have your own favorite rationalization on behalf of uh, Trump? I mean, in terms of, I think, the failure to in any way rise to the presidency, therefore the degradation of constitutional norms and democratic procedures and uh, and so forth, I think he's been as bad or worse than I expected. A little worse, because I did think there'd be a little more of an attempt to sort of, uh, you know, to change his his nature and his character. Uh, The economy's been okay, he's been fine, Uh, continued on the path that was on when he took over. Uh, Some of the deregulation probably helped. The tax bill's pretty, I'm pretty dubious about that, but we'll see where that is a year from now. But I think that's what people mean when they say it's been better, there's been no crash of the markets, and the judges, he followed the Federal Society, you know, recommendations, so he's appointed uh, mostly solid conservative judges. Uh, Foreign policy, we haven't really paid too much for price yet, you could argue, for the so many ridiculous and irresponsible things he said and done. I very much, I very much worry we will pay. It. I think we're almost certain to pay a price at some point, and I worry it'll be sooner rather than later. So I'm in the camp that I see why I see what people mean when they use that rationalization, but I think it's extremely short-sighted. It's like saying that you know you're in some. I mean, to use an obvious metaphor, maybe exaggerated. When you're the fires hasn't gotten quite here yet, so what's to worry about? You know, or, or I mean, the damage he's doing is real. I think I think it's going to become increasingly evident, but people can can kid themselves for quite a while. Rationalization for me, that's the you mentioned Eric Harford at the beginning of this of this discussion. Yeah, he's famous for writing a book called I think The True Believer, right? Or True Believers. So he's a true believer, I think. And it was about how people could talk themselves into believing in something like communism or fascism, you know, when all the evidence was against it. And that was such a big phenomenon of the forties, thirties, forties, fifties. For me, the big lesson of the last couple of years hasn't been so much true believers, there's some of that, but true rationalizers. I mean, the degree to which people can sort of step-by-step talk themselves into accepting someone like Trump, and parts of Trumpism, incidentally. And two or three years ago, they would have been repulsed. A year ago, they would have been put off, but maybe a little, well, maybe we can live with it. Six months ago, it was, 
yeah, you know, we can live with it, and maybe there are a few good things about it. And now it's, hey, we're all in. This is great. I mean, the degree to which people have slid down that slope and the speed with which they have, I do find that pretty astonishing. It's a cult, isn't it, Bill? I think it's become a little bit of a cult. I mean, he won, and winning is a big deal in politics and football and other things. And I just, you know, he won with an inside straight, and he was lucky, and he had Comey, and he had this and that, but nonetheless, he won. And people use that as their kind of final rationalization. I thought, I think you and I may have both thought this, that the November elections, pretty bad defeat for Republicans, might right. begin to shake people's confidence that Trump right. is a winner. But they've just kind of glossed over that and yep. decided, I don't know, he, that doesn't count. He wasn't on the ballot. And right. He's going to win again, you know. Well, that, that's why it's a cult. And, you know, and you use the, the metaphor of a fire. I have a slightly different one, although similar. I think it's a house that's infested with termites. Yeah, uh, that's a, a house that's that better, is yeah. the house that's it's not inf- quite visible. You know, right, so right, we, one, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the house looks like it's fine. Everyone, oh, yeah. Look, the house is fine. Well, um, you know, wait five years and see whether that house is still there. And and you know, and that gets me to where I think we're headed, uh, Bill. And I live here in California, where we have no Republican conservative attempt to to hold the line against liberal socialism especially post arnold schwarzenegger and while there are differences i believe post trump we're headed for post arnold schwarzenegger california republicanism where the trump cult is gone and the suburbs are gone and what's left is not enough to hold the line what do you make of that theory i think some version of that is very possible my colleague John McCormick used to say at the Weekly Standard a couple of years ago that he thought the ultimate was all these conservatives were defending Trump. He's our last hope against the left. That He said, are you kidding? Four years, eight years from now, Trump is going to have strengthened the left immeasurably. He will have discredited the right. He will have discredited conservatives in the Republican Party. The left will move left in reaction to Trump. But they won't even pay a political price, or they may not pay a political price because Trump will have so discredited uh, the alternative, which what will appear to be the only alternative. So I very much agree with that. I mean, if, if, if free market economics, conservative economics, uh, Republican economics becomes Trump, Trump economics, which is protectionism plus uh, crony capitalism plus uh, huge ballooning uh, deficit, debt and deficits, deficits um, then, you know, what's our argument against against left-wing policies, really? Is that what we can use? Republicans, can they make the deficit argument with a straight face? Can they, can they say government shouldn't pick winners and losers? Should they say that markets really help, you know, everyone? And uh, I mean, it just... So I very much agree that, that the one of the bad effects of Trumpism is going to be a strengthening of the left. I think he's doing the left's work for them. He has broken the back of philosophical conservatism, yeah. and, and and the backlash to him is going to, uh, I believe, bring in the worst of socialism that Hillary Clinton could never have dreamed of, especially when she was going to have a Republican Congress. We would still have a Republican Congress right now if Hillary had won. Uh, I, I mean, I, I get mocked all the we time. Would have, we would have like 58 Republican senators probably and have yes. a very, very strong Republican Congress, actually. I yeah. agree with that. She would, be, she would be powerless. I mean, I mean, I get mocked because I actually say to I mean, watch their eyes glaze over that conservatism in the long run would have been far better off if Hillary had won. Do you agree with that? Yes. And, and uh, along those lines, I, the, of course, the left will always over, overplay their hand. They always do this. This is their their chronic uh, vulnerability. And they will lo- probably overplay their hand when it comes to picking a candidate in 2020. But let's presume for a second the candidate is Donald Trump. And, and the Democratic candidate, somehow, the Democrats are sensible and they nominate Joe Biden, assuming he runs. 
Who does Bill Crystal vote for between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? I, mean, I really I don't think I could vote for Trump. I might be able to vote for Biden. I might, uh, I suppose, sit it out. But I, I mean, I think at this point, I'm willing to put up with a Democratic administration and things about it that I really won't like just to try to get the, the country back into sort of reasonable order, some respect for the rule of law, even though Biden's version of it isn't quite my version of it, uh, some sensible foreign policy, even though Biden's version of it isn't quite my version, and a real attempt then to, as you just said, uh, or following up on what you just said, to try to reestablish a kind of sensible conservative alternative. It might not be everything I would like, exactly the conservatism I would prefer. I'm, I've never been, you know, none of us has ever demanded perfection or purity, I don't believe, from our Republicans, from the Republican leaders we've supported or the conservative thinkers we've read and admired. They all differ among themselves, obviously, but something reasonable and, and sensible, constitutional, uh, and serious, you know, uh, on the conservative side. I think that's the, that will be the task if there's a Democratic president in 2021. Is there, are there any other candidates running on the Democratic side that you could see yourself voting for over Trump? I mean, there's so many that, you know, yeah, I think a couple of these governors are, are not crazy. Hickenlooper in Colorado and the governor of Montana. and uh, I don't know, Klobuchar seems to throw things at her staff occasionally, but her actual <laughs> policies might not be crazy. So I'm, I'm honestly, you know, well, let's see where they all are in a year, I guess, is my attitude. Fair enough. Bill Crystal. thanks so much for your time. Thanks for fighting the good fight and standing up for your principles. We really do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, John. I enjoyed it. Take care. That is Bill Crystal, the guy who I refer to as the godfather of the Never Trump conservative movement in America. Uh, he and I uh, have a, an interesting relationship because I do believe that um, we agree on about 90, 95 percent of stuff. But I, I see myself as, as the more realistic version of Bill, Bill Crystal, and he's a little bit more optimistic. Of course, it's hard to be more pessimistic than me. And, and frankly, when we got into the details, there wasn't much he could disagree with me on other than the idea that Donald Trump uh, was not necessarily going to be the Republican presidential nominee. I get why Bill's doing what he's doing, and I'm in all in favor of it. But my prediction is, and look, it'd be awesome if I was wrong. My prediction is that Bill's going to realize when the time comes that uh, that this is a, a battle that's going to actually not be productive because it will actually strengthen Trump by allowing him to win by you know margins of eighty to twenty or something like that. Now, if you get it into the sixty forty range, then that's a legitimate principled fight. Uh, that can drive Trump crazy, and it could be very important because, as I have outlined before, presidents in the modern era who do not have primary challenges win re-election. Those that do that uh, do have primary challenges of any legitimate sort, they lose every single time. Going back to 1968, which I referenced in that uh, interview with uh, Bill Crystal. Uh, so thanks so much for listening to this edition, uh, episode number nine of the Individual One Podcast. As I say, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Please follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Of course, at the end of each show, we uh, provide an update on our official chances of Trump not finishing his first term, as well as him getting reelected. Please, no wagering. There is a very slight change from just a few days ago. I now have the uh, official Individual One Podcast chances of Trump not finishing his first term at 12% and his re-election chances at 42%. Until next time, when we speak to you, uh, it'll be Wednesday morning, Los Angeles time, and the next edition, episode number 10 of the Individual One Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. Global Story Network.